Chapter Three of Danny's Own Story. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Kaufman. Danny's Own Story by Don Marquis. Chapter Three. Well, all the lamings Hank laid on never done me any good. It seemed like I was just naturally cut out to have no success in life, and no amount of wailing could change it, though Hank he was faithful. Before I was twelve years old, the whole town had seen it, and there wasn't nothing else expecting me except not to be any good. That had its handy sides to it, too. There was lots of kids there that had to go to school, but Hank, he never would have let me done that if I had asked him, and I never asked it, and there was lots of kids considerably bothered all the time with their parents and relations. They made em go to Sunday school, and wash up regular all over on Saturday nights, and put on shoes and stockings part of the time, even in the summer, and some had to ask to go in swimming, and the whole thing was a continuous trouble and privation to em. But there wasn't nothing predicted of me, and I done like it was predicted. Everybody allowed from the start that Hank would have made trash out of me, even if I hadn't showed all the signs of being trash anyhow. And if there was devilment anywhere about that town, they all says Danny he done it, and like as not I has. So I gets to be what you might call an outcast. All the kids whose folks ain't trash, their mothers tells em not to run with me no more. Which they done it all the more for that reason, on the sly, and it makes me more important with them. But when I gets a little bigger, all that makes me feel kind of bad sometimes. It ain't so handy then, for folks gets saying when I would come around, Danny, what do you want? If I says nothing, they would say, Well, then you get out of here. Which they needn't have been suspicion and nothing like they pretended they did, for I never stole nothing more than water millions and mush millions and such truck, and maybe now and then a chicken us kids used to roast in the woods on Sundays, and just as like as not it was one of Hank's hens then, which I figured I'd earned it, for Hank he had streaks when he'd worked me considerable hard. He never give me any money for it, he loafed a lot too, and when he'd loaf I'd loaf. But I did pick up right smart of handiness with tools around there that shop of his in, and if he'd ever have used me right, I might have turned into a pretty fair blacksmith. But it wasn't no use trying to work for Hank. When I was about fifteen, times is right bad around the house for a spell, and Elmira's working pretty hard, and I thinks to myself, Well, these folks has kind of brung you up, and you ain't never done more than Hank made you do. Maybe you ought to stick to work a little more when there's a job in the shop, even if Hank don't. Which I tried it for about two or three years, doing as much work around the shop as Hank done, and maybe more. But it wasn't no use. One day when I'm about eighteen, I seen awful plain. I'd have to light out from there. There was a circus coming to town that day. I says to Hank, Hank, there is a circus this afternoon and again tonight. So I was hearing, says Hank. Are you going to it, says I. I'm out, says Hank, and then again I mountain't. I don't see as it's no concern to yarn no how. I knowed he was going, though. Hank, he never missed a circus. Well, I says, there wasn't no harm to ask, was they? Well, you've asked it, ain't you, says Hank. Well, then, says I, I'd like to go to that there circus myself. There ain't no use in me saying for you not to go, says Hank, for you would go anyhow. You always does go off when you is needed. But I ain't got no money, I says, and I was going to ask you, could you spare me half a dollar? Great Jehoshaphat, says Hank, but ain't you getting stuck up? What's the matter of you crawling in under the tent like you always done? First thing I know, you'll be wanting a pair of these here yaller shoes and a stovepipe hat. No, says I, I ain't no dude, Hank, and you know it. But there is always things about a circus to spend money on besides just a circus herself. There is a sideshow, for instance, and there is the grand concert afterward. I calculated I'd take em all in this year, the whole darn thing, just for once. Hank, he looks at me like I asked for a house and a lot or a million dollars or something like that. But he don't say nothing, he just snorts. Hank, I says, I've been doing right smart work around the shop for two, three years now. If you wasn't loafing so much, you'd have noticed it more. And I ain't never asked for a cent of pay for it, nor... You ain't worth no pay, says Hank. You ain't worth nothing but to eat vittles and wear out clothes. 
Well, I says, I figure I earn my vittles and a good deal more, and as far as clothes go, I never had none but what Elmira made out in yourn. Who brung you up? asked Hank. You done it, says I, and by your own say so, done a darn poor job at it. You go to that there circus, says Hank, a flaring up, and I'll lambaste you up to a inch of your life. So far as handling out money for you to sling it to the dogs, I ain't no bank, and if I was, I ain't no idiot. But you just let me hear of you even going nigh that circus lot, and all the lambings you has ever got rolling into one won't be a measly little circumstance to what you will get. There ain't no leather-faced young upstart with weeping willow hail going to throw up to me how I brung him up. That's gratitude for you, that is, says Hank. If it hadn't have been for me giving you a home when I found you first, where would you have been now? Well, I says, I might have been a good deal better off if you hadn't a took me in the Alexanders as it would have, and I wouldn't have been kept out of school and grown up an ignoramus like you is. I never had no trouble keeping you away from school, I noticed, says Hank with a snort. This is the first thing I ever hear of you wanting to go there, which was true in one way, and a lie in another. I ain't never wanted to go till lately, but he'd a lamb me if I had wanted to. He always said he would, and I was too big and knowed it. Well, Hank, he never give me no money, so I watches my chance that afternoon and slips in under the tent, same as always, and I lays low under them green benches and wiggle through when I seen a good chance. The first person I seen was Hank. Of course, he seen me, and he shook his fist at me in a promising kind of way, and they wasn't no trouble figuring out what he meant. For a while, I didn't enjoy the circus to no extent, for I was thinking that if Hank tries to lick me for it, I'll fight him back this time, which I hadn't never fit him back much yet for fear he'd pick up some iron around the shop and just naturally lay me cold with it. I got home before Hank did. It was not sundown, and I was waiting in the door in the shop for Elmire to holler, Vils is ready, and Hank come along. He didn't waste no time. He steps inside the shop, and he takes down a strap, and he says, You come here and take off your shirt. But I just moves away. Hank, he runs in on me, and he swings his strap. I throwed up my arm, and it cut me across the knuckles. I run in on him, and he dropped the strap and fetched me in an open-handed smack plumb on the mouth that jarred my head back and like to have busted it loose. Then I got right mad, and I run on him again, and this time I got to him, and I wrestled with him. Well, sir, I never was so surprised in all my life before, for I hadn't had hold of him more than a minute before I seen I'm stronger than Hank is. I throwed him, and he hit the ground with considerable of a jar, and then I put my knee in the pit of his stomach and churned it a couple. And I thinks to myself, what a fool I must have been for better in a year, because I might have done this any time. I got him by the ears, and I slammed his head into the gravel a few times, him a-reaching for my throat and a-pounding me with his fist, but me a-taking the licks and keeping holt. And I had a mighty contested time for a few minutes there on top of Hank, chuckling to myself, and batting him one every now and then for luck, and trying to make him holler, it's enough. But Hank is stubborn, he won't holler. And pretty soon I thinks, what am I going to do? For Hank will be so mad when I let him up, he'll just naturally kill me without a kill him. And I was scared, because I don't want neither one of them things to happen. Whilst I was thinking it over and getting scareder and scareder and banging Hank's head harder and harder, someone grabs me from behind. They was two of them, and one gets my collar, and one gets a seat of my pants, and they drug me off on him. Hank, he gets up, and then he sets down sudden on a horse block and wipes his face on his sleeve, which there was considerable blood come onto the sleeve. I looks around to see who has had hold of me, and it is two men. One of them looks about seven feet tall on account of a big plug hat and long white linen duster, and has a beautiful red beard. In the road they is a big stout road wagon with a canopy top over it pulled by two horses and on the wagon box lays a strip of canvas which i couldn't read then what was wrote on the canvas but i learnt later it said in big print siwash indian sagraw nature's universal medicinal specific discovered by dr hartley l kirby among the aborigines of oregon on account of being so busy neither hank nor me had hearing the wagon come along the road and stop the big man in the plug hat he says or they was worse that effect just as serious why you maulin' that aged gent? 
Well, says I, he needed it considerable. But, says he, still more solemn, the good book says to honor thy father and thy mother. Well, I says, maybe it does and maybe it don't. But he ain't my father nohow, and he ain't been getting no more in his comeuppings. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, the big man remarks, very serious. Hank, he riz up then, and he says, Mister, be you a preacher? Cause if you be, the sooner you have drove on, the better for ye. I got a grudge against all preachers. That feller, he just looks Hank over calm and easy and slow before he answers, and he wrinkles up his face like he never seen anything like Hank before. Then it fetches a kind of aggravating smile, and he says, Beneath the shady chestnut tree, the village blacksmith stands. The smith, the pleasant soul is he, with warts upon his hands. He stares at Hank hard and solemn and serious while he is saying that poetry at him. Hank fidgets and turns his eyes away, but the feller touches him on the breast with his finger and makes him look at him. My honest friend, says the feller, I am not a preacher. Not right now, anyhow, no. My mission is spreading the glad tidings of good health. Look at me. And he swells his chest up and keeps a hold of Hank's eyes with his and you behold before you the discoverer, manufacturer, and proprietor of Siwash Indian Sagraw, nature's own remedy for Bright's disease, rheumatism, liver and kidney trouble, catarrh consumption, bronchitis, ringworm, erysipelas, lung fever, typhoid, croup, dandruff, stomach trouble, dyspepsia, and there was a lot more of them. Well, says Hank, sort of backing up as the big man come nearer and nearer to him, just naturally bully-ragging him with them eyes. I got none of them there complaints. The doctor, he kind of snarls, and he brings his hand down hard on Hank's shoulder, and he says... There are more things betwixt Dan and Beersheba than was ever dreamed in thy sagacity, Romeo. Or they was worse to that effect, for that doctor was just plumb full of scripture quotations, and he sings out sudden, giving Hank a shove that nearly pushes him over. Man alive, he yells, you don't know what disease you may have. Many's the strong man I've seen rejoicing in his strength at the dawn of day cut down like the grass in the field before sunset, he says. Hank, he's trying to look the other way, but that doctor won't let his eyes wiggle away from his'n. He says very sharp, stick out your tongue. Hank, he sticks her out. The doctor, he takes some glasses out in his pocket and puts them on, and he fetches a long look at her. Then he opens his mouth like he was going to say something, and shuts it again like his feelings won't let him. He puts his arm across Hank's shoulder affectionate and sad, and then he turns his head away like there was someone dead in the family. Finally, he says, I thought so. I saw it in your eyes when I first drove up. I hope, he says very mournful, I haven't come too late. Hank, he turns pale. I was getting sorry for Hank myself. I seen now why I licked him so easy, and one could have told from that doctor's actions Hank was as good as a dead man already. But Hank, he makes a big effort, and he says, Shucks, I'm sixty-eight years old, doctor, and I ain't never had a sick day in my life. But he was awful uneasy, too. The doctor, he says to the feller with him, Louis, bring me one of the sample size. Louis brung it, the doctor never taking his eyes off on Hank. He handed it to Hank, and he says, A whisk a glass full three times a day, my friend, and there is a good chance for even you. I give it to you without money and without price. But what have I got? asks Hank. You have spinal meningitis, says the doctor, never batting an eye. Will this here cure me, says Hank. It'll cure anything, says the doctor. Hank, he says, shucks again, but he took the bottle and pulled the cork out and smelt it right thoughtful. And what them fellows had stopped at our place for was to have the shoe of the nigh hosses off hind foot nailed on, which it was most ready to drop off. Hank, he done it for a regulation dollar-sized bottle, and they drove on into the village. Right after supper, I goes downtown. They was in front of Smith's Palace Hotel. They was just starting up when I got there. Well, sir, their doctor was a sight. He didn't have his duster on to him, but his stovepipe hat was, and one of them long Prince Alfred coats nearly to his knees and shiny shoes, but his vet was cut out of holler fur to show his biled shirt, and it was the pinkest shirt I ever see, and in the middle of that, they was a diamond as big as Uncle Pat's hickey's wen and what was out of the town sights. 
No, sir, they never was a man with more genuine fashionableness sticking out all over him than Dr. Kirby. He just fairly wallered in it. I hadn't paid no particular attention to the other feller with him when they stopped at our place, except to notice he was kind of slim and black-haired and funny complected. But I see now I order a look closer, for I'll be dad binged if he weren't an injun. Then he set under that there gasoline lamp the wagon was all lit up with, with moccasins on and beads and shells all over him, and the gaudiest turkey tail of feathers rainbowing down from his head you ever see, and a blanket around him that was gaudier than the feathers, and he shined and rattled every time he moved. That wagon was a whole opera house to itself. It was rolled out in front of Smith's Palace Hotel without the hosses. The front part was filled with bottles of medicine. The doctor, he begun business by taking out a long brass horn and tooting on it. There was about a dozen come, but they was mostly boys. Then him and the engine picked up some banjos and sung a comic song out loud and clear. And there was another dozen or so come. And they sang another song, and Pop Wilkins, he closed up the post office and came over and the other two veterans of the Grand Army of the Republicans that always played checkers in their nights come along with him. But it wasn't much of a crowd, and the doctor, he looked sort of worried. I had a good place right near the hind wheel of the wagon where he rested his foot occasional, and I seen what he was thinking. So I says to him, Dr. Kirby, I guess the crowd is all going to the circus again tonight. And all them fellers there seen I knowed him. I guess so, Rube, he says to me. And they all laughed because he called me Rube, and I felt kind of took down. Then he lit in to tell about that engine medicine. First off, he told how he come to find out about it. It was the father of the engine what was with him had showed him, he said and it was in the days of his youthfulness when he was wild and a cowboy on the plains of Oregon. Well, one night, he says, there was an awful fight on the plains of Oregon, wherever them is, and he got plugged full of bullet holes, and his hoss run away with him, and he was carried off, and the hoss was going at a dead run, and the blood was running down onto the ground, and the wolf smelt the blood and took out after him, yipping and yowling something frightful here, and the hoss, he kicked out behind and killed the head wolf, and the others stopped to eat him up, and while they was eating him, the hoss gained a quarter of a mile. But they ate him up, and they was gaining again, for the smell of human blood was on the plains of Oregon, he says, and the sight of his mother's face when she asked him never to be a cowboy came to him in the moonlight, and he knowed that somehow all would yet be well, and then he must have fainted, and he knowed no more till he woke up in a tent on the plains of Oregon, and there was an old engine bending over him, and a beautiful engine maiden was feeling of his pulse, and they says to him, Pale face, take hope, for we will doctor you with Siwash Injun Sagra, which is nature's own cure for all diseases. They done it, and he got well. It had been a secret among them their engines for thousands and thousands of years. Any engine that gave away the secret was killed and rubbed off the rolls of the tribe and buried in disgrace upon the plains of Oregon. And the doctor was made a blood brother of the chief and learnt the secret of that medicine. Finally, he got the chief to see as it wasn't Christian to hold back that their medicine from the world no longer, and the chief, his heart was softened, and he says to go. Go, my brother, he says, and give to the pale faces the medicine that has been kept secret for thousands and thousands of years among the Siwash Injuns on the plains of Oregon. And he went, and it wasn't that he wanted to make no money out of that there medicine. He could have made all the money he wanted being a doctor in the regular way, but what he wanted was to spread the glad tidings of good health all over this fair land of ourn, he says. Well, sir, he was a talker, that there doctor was, and he knowed more religious sayings and poetry along with it than any feller I ever hearn. He goes on and he tells how awful sick people can manage to get and never know it, and no one else never suspicion it, and live along for years and years that way, and all that time in danger of death. He says it makes him weep when he sees them poor diluted fools going around and thinking they is well men, talking and laughing and marrying and giving in to marriage right on the edge of the grave. He sees dozens of em in every town he comes to. But they can't fool him, he says. He can tell at a glance who's got Bright's disease in their kidneys and who ain't. His own father, he says, was deathless sick for years and years and never knowed it, and the knowledge come on him sudden-like, and he died. That was before Siwash Injun Sagraw was ever found out about. 
Dr. Kirby broke down and cried right there in the wagon when he thought of how his father might have been saved if he was only alive now that that medicine was put up into bottle form, six for a five-dollar bill so long as he was in town, and after that two dollars for each bottle at the drug store. He unrolled a big chart, and the engine held it by that there gasoline lamp so all could see, turning the pages now and then. It was a map of a man's inside organs and digestive ornaments and things. They was red and blue like each organ's own disease had turned it, and some of them was yaller and there was a long string of diseases printed in black hanging down from each organ's picture. I never knew they was so many diseases, nor yet so many things to have a man. Well, I was feeling pretty good when the show started, but the doc, he kept looking right at me every now and then when he talked, and I couldn't keep my eyes off on him. Does your heart beat fast when you exercise, he asked the crowd. Is your tongue coated after meals? Do your eyes leak when your nose is stopped up? Do you perspire under your armpits? Do you ever have a ringing in your ears? Does your stomach hurt after meals? Does your back ever ache? Do you ever have pains in your legs? Do your eyes blur when you look at the sun? Are your teeth coated? Does your hair come out when you comb it? Is your breath short when you walk upstairs? Do your feet swell in warm weather? Are there white spots on your fingernails? Do you draw your breath part of the time through one nostril and part of the time through the other? Do you ever have a nightmare? Did your nose bleed easily when you were grown up? Does your skin fester when scratched? Are your eyes gummy in the mornings? Then, he says, if you have any or all of these symptoms, your blood is bad and your liver is wasting away. Well, sir, I seen I was in a bad way, for at one time or another I had most of them their signs and warnings, and I hadn't heeded them, and I had some of them yet. I begun to feel kind of sick, and looking at them organs and diseases didn't help me none either. The doctor, he lit out on another string of symptoms, and I had them too. Seems to me I'd pretty nigh everything but fits. Kidney complaint and consumption both had a hold on me. It was about an even bet which would get me first. I kind of got to wondering which. I figured from what he said I'd had consumption the longest while, but my kind of kidney trouble was an awful sly kind, and I was liable to jump in without no warning at all and just naturally wipe me out quick. So I sort of bet on the kidney trouble. But I seen I was a goner, and I forgive Hank all his orneriness for a feller don't want to die holding grudges. Taking it the whole way through, that was about the best medicine show I ever seen, but they didn't sell much. All the people had any money was to the circus again that night, so they sung some more songs and closed early and went into the hotel. End of chapter 3 Recording by Dan Kaufman www.dankaufman.com